From MPB Think Radio, this is In Legal Terms, a show all about you and your rights. I'm Sherita Brent here with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest today is Scott Gilbert, attorney at law for Watkins and Eager Law Firm. We have a huge election coming up to decide the next president of the United States. So today we'll talk about some election law matters. Who is eligible to vote in an election? Is there a standard for how information is presented to voters on the ballot or device? What is the Voting Rights Act and how is it still important today? You can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464 with any comments or questions you may have. Or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be back right after the news. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is a show about you and your rights. I'm Sherita Brand here with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest today is Scott Gilbert, attorney at law for Watkins and Eager Law Firm. We have a huge election coming up, I'm sure you have noticed, to decide the next president of the United States. So today we'll talk about some election law matters. Who is eligible to vote in an election? Is there a standard for how information is presented to voters on the ballot or a device? What is the Voting Rights Act and how is it still important today? And we'll also talk about the process of writing in candidates on a ballot. You can give us a call if you have any questions or comments about your experiences at the voting booth, uh, any comments you have on the Voting Rights Act. 877-MPB-RING is the number, 877-672-7464, or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Professor Gershon and Scott. Thanks for being with me. Good morning, morning, Sharita. It is great to have Scott on the show today. He is... uh an expert on this subject and such an important subject. Absolutely. Um, and Scott, you could talk a little about uh, Watkins and Eager. You were telling me uh, some interesting historical information that it's a, a pretty uh, old and established law firm. Yeah, Watkins and Eager's been around for uh, about 120 years. It's uh, one of, if not the oldest law firm around in Jackson. Uh, it's in downtown Jackson on Capitol Street, and it's a very uh, a very diversified law firm. We do everything from uh, white-collar uh, criminal defense, uh, false claims act, health care, uh, representation. We do transactional work, business clients, uh, everything from domestic work. We have lawyers that will do uh, divorces and child custody, uh, lawyers that do all kinds of uh, products liability, uh, uh, like I said, medical malpractice and other things. So it, if, it, if there's something that a lawyer can do for you, there's a lawyer at Watkins and Eager that can hmm. do it. Yeah, because this is the second time we've had you on, so this is a testament to your range of expertise. Um, So we can start this conversation off by talking about who is eligible to vote in an election. Of course, we have a huge one coming up, so all these things are are going through people's minds. But, um, you know, when we talk about folks who may have been convicted of a crime at some point, um, um, or how old do you have to be to to vote in an election, what are the specifics of that? So you've got to be 18 to vote. Uh, on the day of the election, and you have to be registered at least 30 days before the election. So this year, our general election is on November 8th, so you're going to have to be registered by October the 8th. Now, you can register to vote if you're 17 as long as you will be 18 on election day. 
So uh, you can either mail in your registration or you can go down to the circuit clerk's office and register in person. But either way, that has to be done 30 days uh, ahead of time, so by October the 8th. Okay. Um, and does it matter, like, if you're moving states, do you have to be registered in the state to it, vote? It, it does, and, and there's actually a reason for that that we'll talk about a little later. But generally speaking, you have to be, uh, like I said, registered 30 days before Election Day. You have to be a U.S. citizen, and you have uh, you need to have lived at your current address in Mississippi for at least 30 days prior uh, to the Election Day. Okay. Uh, so what about those individuals who have been convicted of a, a crime at some point, uh, a felony? Can they vote? Uh, maybe their record was expunged or something like that. Well, now, th- this is this is sort of an interesting question because there are a lot of different answers to that. So you have state elections and you have federal elections, right? Mm-hmm. So in Mississippi, you are uh, disenfranchised, legally disenfranchised. You can't vote anymore if you've been convicted of either murder, rape, bribery, theft, arson, uh, obtaining money or goods under false pretenses, perjury, forgery, embezzlement, or bigamy. Hmm. So if you've been convicted of felony offenses for any of those things, you are disenfranchised from voting in a state election. Now, in a federal election, any felony conviction will disenfranchise you from voting in a federal election. But now there are other states that deal with this differently. Uh, there are some states that allow probationers uh, and parolees to vote. There are some states that allow people to vote as soon as they get out of prison. Uh, there are some states that allow people uh, to uh, vote after they finish probation and parole. And then, you know, there are states like Mississippi that only have a limited number of felony convictions that will cause you to lose your right to vote. And then there are only two states, Florida and Virginia, uh, that permanently disenfranchise people with felony convictions. Wow. Okay. Um, now, are you familiar with, uh, is there an online process for voting or um, does it still have to be done in person? Well, there are two ways to vote. One is to go down to the polls on Election Day and well, vote in I, person. I guess I meant registering to vote. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you can go online to your uh, county circuit clerk's website and pull down that information. Uh, there may be some circuit clerk off- clerk's offices that allow online registration, but everybody allows uh, registration by mail. Now, you mentioned the word disenfranchisement. Um, what are some other examples of, of voter disenfranchisement? Would you st- say that, that um, it's still an issue, you know, people who feel like they're uh, unfairly losing their right to vote? Well, anybody that feels like they've been dissuaded from going and exercising their right to vote uh, obviously has been disenfranchised, and that's important, and, and it's a serious issue. Disenfranchisement just in general uh, is is losing your right of suffrage or your right to vote, whether it's it's for a person or a group. And we just talked about legal disenfranchisement based on a law enacted by the legislature. Um, but there are other uh, methods uh, of disenfranchisement as well uh, that, uh, that, that occur. Um, you've got things, uh, you know, these traditional things that happen like the poll tax or literacy test uh, and things like that. And those were things that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was enacted uh, to counteract. Uh, Mm -hmm. And the Voting Rights Act uh, was signed into law by President Johnson in 1965. It's been amended uh, five times by Congress over the years. uh, And the purpose of the act was to enforce voting rights that are guaranteed by the the uh, 14th and 15th Amendments of the Constitution. Uh, specifically with regard to racial minorities, uh, and uh, we've seen more recently with uh, lingual minorities. Um, There are a couple of provisions of the Act that are important to deal with disenfranchisement. Uh, The general section of the Act is Section 2, and what it does is it prohibits any state or local government from imposing a a law, a voting law, that will result in discrimination against racial or language minorities. Um, 
other general provisions uh, outlaw those things we talked about just a minute ago, literacy tests and other devices that were historically used to uh, disenfranchise racial minorities. Uh, the act uh, has a, a special provision that only applies to certain jurisdictions, and this has been in the news uh, in the last couple of years, uh, and it's called Section 5, and that was the preclearance requirement. Uh, and so what that did was that prohibited certain specific places in the country uh, from implementing any sort of change that would affect voting rights without receiving pre-approval from either the Attorney General at the Department of Justice or the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. Uh, and those uh, entities would have to certify that the proposed changes would not discriminate against a protected minority. Now, uh, back in 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down uh, part of Section 5, which was the coverage formula. And so basically what happened is in 1965, when the act was, was enacted originally, there was uh, information and evidence before Congress about discriminatory actions that were being taken to prevent minorities from voting. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in 1970 and 1975, Congress updated their findings with regard to that evidence, but they didn't update it after 1975. And so what the Supreme Court said in 2013 was, look, if you want to require preclearance, you have to have current accurate data about activities that are discriminatory. So you need to come back and show us that these particular jurisdictions, and Mississippi was one of them, are still engaging in certain discriminatory conduct that warrants you still having the ability to pre-clear their changes. Mm -hmm. And so Congress has yet to act on that, uh, but those are the two uh, main points uh, of the Voting Rights Act. And, and again, that uh, sort of got off the, the question about disenfranchisement, but uh, that was the biggest measure taken by the federal government to try and deal with the issues of disenfranchisement. Okay. Um, and uh, Dean Gerson, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get your thoughts in just a moment, but we're going to go to Eva, who's in DeSoto County. Good morning, Eva. What do you have for us? Morning. Um, my question is, uh, it was in, if I'm correct, I hope I am, in 2013, the state of Mississippi uh, signed the two doctrines that declared uh, us to be from slavery. And since our voting rights, was a little dark green on the side of the Constitution. I am wondering, my question is, is any plans or uh, will it ever be in, uh, put in the Constitution, amended into the Constitution, rather than a president every 25 years, whatever one is in, it doesn't matter, and if he so decides to, which they're kind enough so far, to sign it that we can still vote. The last one example was President George W. Bush. He signed it. So it's 2025, if I'm correct, that it's coming up again. But I'm just wondering, my main question, will we ever be amended into the Constitution of the United States rather than just a doctrine has to be uh, signed ever so often? Okay. Eva, thank you for that question. Well, if I understood the question uh, correctly, she's asking uh, whether or not the Constitution will ever be uh, amended to ensure the right to vote uh, for uh, minorities. Eve, was that the question? Eva, is that correct? Slash African American. We was the one in the, in the Civil Rights era, Mr. I think President Johnson signed it that we could vote, uh, whichever president, and it never was amended, like the 14th Amendment. You know, they put it into, it's just a doctrine, and a, and a president of the United States, when they're in, when the uh, 
time limit, like 25 years in, they have to re-sign that oh. in order for us to continue to vote. Okay, so I guess she's uh, asking when would it be a permanent fixture or is it already one? No, it, it, it's already one, and, and I think it's the 13th Amendment that gave uh, the right to vote to uh, African Americans and minorities uh, in America. And so that is in the Constitution, and it is permanent. Well, uh, why do they have to sign it every 25 years? That's what my question. See, if a president is coming up again in 2025, who was in office at the time, they will need to sign it again. Because President George W. Bush signed it at the time when he was in office. Okay. Uh, Professor Gershon, is this something you're familiar with? Well, I think what, I think what she's uh, maybe com- confused a little bit about is the Voting Rights Act just gave certain protections to ensure that the Constitution was enforced in states where, uh, you know, that had taken measures to make sure that it was really difficult for minorities to vote, even though they had a right to vote. You know, uh, things that uh, were particularly uh, difficult for minorities to get to polls, to, to, to exercise their right to vote. But they do, they, they do have a right to vote. Everyone who is a citizen of the United States has a right to vote uh, under the Constitution, as Scott said. And, uh, you know, what, what the Voting Rights Act assurances do is they, they check on certain states to make sure that, you know, they're not uh, using some of these, these old practices to try to make it hard for minorities to vote. Um, you know, and I think the people who challenge the Voting Rights Act in that regard say, well, you know, why, why just these states? You know, maybe, you know, there are other states that may engage in this as well who did not historically, but... You know, uh, you know, if you're having special scrutiny on certain states, uh, you know, maybe those states now uh, don't need that scrutiny and maybe just the, the scrutiny needs to be more national. All right, Eva, thank you so much for your call. We need to take our first break and we'll get back. We'll continue talking about some uh, matters in election law. We'll talk about what materials do you need at the voting booth. We'll continue the conversation about the Voting Rights Act as well and talk about the process of writing in candidates on a ballot. You can give us a call this morning if you have any questions or comments about how to vote the Voting Rights Act. Um, We'll also later get into political advertising. 877-MPB-RING is the number. Any comments or questions you have about uh, voter disenfranchisement, you can call us this morning. All our lines are currently open. 877-672-7464 is the number or send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be back in just a moment. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And 
welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sharita Brent in studio with Scott Gilbert, attorney at law for Watkins and Eager Law Firm in Jackson, and Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Uh, since we have a huge election coming up, uh, of course, the next president of the United States is going to be decided upon, and we have some state elections as well. We are talking about election law matters. Who's eligible to vote in an election? Is there a standard for how information is presented to voters on the ballot or device? And in a moment, we're going to talk about some examples of uh, voter disenfranchisement, and uh, we'll also continue the conversation about the Voting Rights Act, its need and importance today. You can give us a call if you have any questions questions or comments about your right to vote. 877-MPB-RING is the number. If you want to share your experiences at the voting booth, good or bad, you can call us at 877-672-7464 or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. Um, so we had yeah, kind of started talking about, Scott, uh, voter disenfranchisement and some examples of that. Um, and you've said that misinformation is one that stands out to you as an example. Right. Well, you know, misinformation can be pretty basic um, and it can go right to the heart of can you go vote? Where do you go vote? And when do you vote? Hmm. So uh, say, for and example, see, I would think those are just, you know, basic things that, that would be common knowledge, but it's not apparently. No. And, and, and I, I've, I was able to find a couple of examples in, in preparing for, for coming on today. And um, one of them was in Wisconsin uh, back in 2011. Uh, a group was uh, accused of distributing uh, flyers in uh, ward, particular wards that had incorrect return dates for absentee ballots. And, you know, these things are, are time-based. So if your absentee ballot's not postmarked by a certain date or received by a certain date, it doesn't get counted. Mm-hmm. And so that's disenfranchisement. If one person gets misinformation and they don't submit their ballot in time, then their vote doesn't count. It's the mm-hmm. same as, as not voting at all. Uh, the organization that did that um, said it was a, a, a misprint. Um, another example uh, happened in Canada in 2011. Uh, there were fraudulent phone calls to large groups of voters telling them that their polling station had been moved. When it had not. Uh, And then in 2014, uh, a group called Americans for Prosperity. And again, these were accusations. All right. So this is all they are. But there was a group called Americans for Prosperity that was accused of distributing uh, voter misinformation by mailing out incorrect and misleading information to hundreds of thousands of voters in North Carolina. Uh, The misinformation included the wrong deadline for voter registration and other uh, inaccurate information along those lines. Now, the group said that it was a misprint. Uh, and they hadn't paid uh, enough attention to detail. But so those are some examples of misinformation. And you think about all the robocalls that you get Mm -hmm. and the things that you get in the mail, and somebody that picks those up uh, and looks at them or listens to the call, if they get that information and they go to the wrong polling place, no one's there, maybe they just don't vote, uh, or if they uh, go on the wrong day. And see, to me, that's proof of how important one's vote is, the, 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 you know, that people will, will go to these extents and to these lengths to try to discourage or uh, misinform somebody about voting. It, it, to me, it just says, OK, obviously voting is important. Otherwise, people wouldn't go through all these things just to um, make sure that certain people don't vote. Uh, Anne is on the road with a question. Good morning, Anne. What do you have for us? Um. I was just wanted to ask about the constitutionality of uh, voter ID laws. I know there's been some rulings lately, and so I just would like for you to comment on that, please. Okay. Thanks for that question, Ann. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, good question, Ann. Uh, so several courts have, uh, and this sort of coincided, by the way, with the uh, uh, Supreme Court's decision in 2013 that uh, 
basically invalidated the current structure of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act that required preclearance. And so after that happened, several states enacted what are called voter ID laws. Now, these laws are, are all uh, somewhat different. I mean, they're similar in several ways, and, and there are some differences. Uh, but essentially what they require is for people to show up with identification at the polls in order to be allowed to vote. Uh, a photo ID to prove you are who you say you are and then that you are eligible to vote uh, at that particular polling place. Uh, several uh, courts, federal courts, have uh, ruled uh, unconstitutional several of the state's uh, voting right or uh, voter ID law provisions. I think North Carolina was recent. I think Texas has had theirs overturned. Uh, and uh, so we, we think this issue is one that's ultimately going to end up at the United States Supreme Court for them to decide. Now, Mississippi's law is still valid. It's still on the books, and it's not been uh, overturned. And as far as I know, the feedback that, that has come out uh, from various public media sources after the last few elections has been relatively positive. There weren't any uh, major reports or, or significant reports of difficulty. Uh, but uh, the constitutionality is an issue that, that's going to be decided by, uh, like I said, ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court at some point. But uh, it, it, in Mississippi, here's what you need to do it, when you're going to go vote. Right now, all voters have to present a current and valid form of photo identification. There's a long list uh, of the types of IDs that are acceptable. Uh, obviously, your valid Mississippi driver's license will work. Uh, a valid ID card that's issued by a branch or department or agency of the state of Mississippi. Uh, you know, if you don't have a valid driver's license, you can go to the Department of Public Safety and get uh, just what's called an ID card. Uh, you can uh, take your passport. Uh, you have, if you have a, an employee identification card with a photo on it that's issued by a federal government agency, by the state, or any county or local uh, government, that'll work. Um, if you've got a uh, concealed carry permit, uh, which looks just like a driver's license, it's just, uh, it's just the color's different, uh, a tribal identification card, uh, a U.S. Uh, United States military identification card, uh, a valid uh, student ID from uh, college um, uh, or junior college, and then if you've got uh, the official Mississippi voter identification card, uh, the voter identification card can be obtained from any circuit clerk's office for free, and the law says the clerk must provide voter ID cards for free. They can't charge you anything. All you have to do uh, is be able to go and walk into the circuit clerk's office uh, and uh, during regular business hours, give the clerk your date of birth, the state where you were born, and your mother's maiden name. And then you sign the application, they take your picture, and they mail your voter ID card to you. Now, if you want to go get one of these cards in time to vote, you're going to have to do it within 45 days of the election because it takes time for the card to be printed and mailed to you. Uh, so uh, they've got to provide you with a receipt, though, and if your card doesn't come to you in the mail by the day of the election, as long as you've gotten it within 45 days of the election, you can take that receipt to the polls and you can vote with it. Okay, let's jump to the phones. Margaret is on the road with a question. Good morning, Margaret. What do you have for us? Uh, yes. Um, a couple of years ago, we tried to get my 90-year-old Chevy mother-in-law an absentee ballot so she could vote in the local elections and the congressional election. And there is a requirement in the paperwork that came with it. I had no problem getting the form. The problem was turning it in because uh, it said you had to present yourself and your ID at the post office in order to prove that you're you and mail in ballot. And if she could get to the post office, she could get to the poll. Now, how does somebody who is a total shut-in get an absentee ballot? Uh, 
That's a good question, Margaret. Um, I was wondering the same thing about uh, the the elderly, you know, um, being under physical duress and not being able to to get to the polls. Uh, Scott, Professor Gershon, you have anything? Well, there's a, I know that there's a list of qualifications uh, that you have to meet to be eligible to vote absentee. You can't just vote absentee because you just don't want to, you know, fight the lines and go down to the polls on election day. Now, obviously, that's not the issue uh, that Margaret's talking about. Um, as long as you're eligible and you meet one of the eligibility requirements, your circuit clerk's office is your stopgap for voting registration and voting issues. So I know you'd mentioned going to the post office, but uh, without having the information right in front of me, what I would suggest is that you contact your circuit clerk and explain the issue. Uh, you should get some good response from your circuit clerk for, if for no other reason. They're an elected official. Uh, you know, last best I can tell, those folks that work behind the counter at the post office, uh, God love them, are not elected and uh, don't really ha- their jobs don't really depend on making you happy. So the circuit clerk is in a different sort of boat, and so I would speak to them uh, and find out exactly what it is you can do to get, get that issue resolved. Okay. Well, as it happens, in the two years since her mental acuity has gone down enough that she's not aware of politics anymore. But two years ago, she was, and she was kind of flustered, at, you know, you know, mad, mad as wet hen type flustered that <laughs> she was hmm. not able to get her ballot and get it in. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, well, thank you so much for your call, Margaret, and uh, hopefully okay. things will get better. We appreciate it. Um. um uh, Professor Gershon, before we go to the break, I wanted to ask, um, on, on your end, have there been any examples of voter disenfranchisement that you've seen um, or things that you've thought to yourself, hmm, this, this may need some, some improvement? Well, Sharita, I think, you know, uh, not recently, but, you know, just over time, um, you know, the historic ones are things like uh, literacy tests that are really set up, designed to be difficult, designed to be a barrier uh, you know, obviously, you know, you would think, well, somebody's ability to read would help them vote. But if you make the test really difficult and only apply it to certain minorities, that's going to have a tendency to prevent them from from voting. So, you know, we've come a long way. I, I think, you know, what uh, what Mississippi and states are trying to do with ID laws is trying to reach a balance. You know, people are concerned about uh, someone showing up and voting when it's not who they say they are. And IDs help to prevent that, but we don't want them to be a barrier either, especially to uh, protected groups. So it, it's you know trying to strike that balance in society, uh, and uh, you know, and I think maybe our laws has done a pretty good job with that. All right, we need to take a break. When we get back, we'll continue the conversation about uh, issues in election law. You can give us a call if you have any questions or comments. Tell us about your experience at the voting booth. Has it been pleasant or unpleasant? If you have any questions about your right to vote, absentee voting, you can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. We're also talking about the Voting Rights Act and its importance. If you have any questions or comments about voter disenfranchisement, give us a call. 877-MPB-RING is the number. All our lines are open. That's eight. 8- 7762-7464 or email legal terms at mpbonline.org. This is Think Radio.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sharita Brent in studio with Scott Gilbert, attorney at law for Watkins and Eager Law Firm in Jackson, and Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Today we've been talking about various things. Uh, who's eligible to vote in an election? What materials do you need at the voting booths? We've also talked about the Voting Rights Act and its importance today. Voter disenfranchisement, some examples of that and how they can be avoided. You can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING if you have any questions or comments. If you want to let us know about your experience uh, at the voting booth, absentee voting, voter registration, any of those topics, 877-MPB-RING is the number, or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. We have several calls to get to. Alan is on the road with a question. Good morning, Alan. What do you have for us? Yes, ma'am. Uh, I was listening earlier, and I was hearing, you know, he was saying that uh, people that had felons could not vote. And I was curious as to why was that, you know, after a person have done their time and they come out and they work, they pay taxes and do everything else. And, you know, they kind of help support the community. Uh, why is it that they don't allow them to have a vote? All right. That's a good question, Alan. Thank you so much. Scott, any right. thoughts? Uh, Alan, that, that is a good question. And it, it's strictly a legislative prerogative. So that's based solely on a law that's enacted by a, either the state legislature or Congress with regard to federal elections. And so it, I'd mentioned before, uh, there are several different approaches. Um, there are a couple of states, uh, Maine and Vermont, allow prison inmates as well as probationers and parolees to vote. Uh, there are 20 states that don't allow people convicted of a felony to vote while they're in jail, but they automatically restore their right to vote once they complete their sentence. Uh, there's other states that 13 states that allow probationers and par- parolees to vote, but not inmates. Uh, you know, so, so there's a long list of, of different ways to approach it, but that's it's just a, a representation of the judgment of the legislature is all it is. All right, Alan, thank you for that call. Uh, Here's another one. I have a question. If my most recent driver's license has one address on it, but I vote in another area, will the voting precinct accept my license? I think I'm going to take a stab at this. I think the answer is yes. The purpose of taking your license to the precinct is to verify your picture with your name. Okay. Uh, As long as you are up to date in your voting registration, uh, you've registered to vote in the in the precinct where you actually live, you should be fine. Uh, I don't know that the uh, voter ID law gets into uh, your address. You know, that, And those are, are things that may not uh, overlap with each other. You may move and register, move your voter registration. You may not uh, update your, your address on your driver's license until you renew your driver's license, and those could be, that could be several years mm-hmm. later. So I, I think the purpose of, of presenting your ID is just to verify that you are who you say you are, not necessarily that you still currently live uh, where your driver's license says you live. All right, we're going back to the phones. Melissa is in Ocean Springs with a question. Good morning, Melissa. What do you have for us? I have two questions, and one is, um, isn't there a fairly low incidence, in fact, of voter fraud? And the second one is, is there any move in Mississippi to make sure that all high school seniors get registered to vote? And I'll get off the line. Okay. Thank you, Melissa. All right. So that's a great question because that is one side of the argument 
with regard to whether voter ID laws are necessary. Uh, and so proponents of voter ID laws tend to suggest that there are uh, enough instances of people misrepresenting who they are at the polls to vote to warrant having a voter ID law. The opponents of voter ID tend to suggest that there's no actual empirical data that supports uh, mass voter fraud by misidentification. Uh, they point to uh, no prosecutions and things like that. So a couple of issues with that. One is to uh, the question about or the point about prosecutions or the lack thereof really is not, a, I don't think, a, a a good data point to look at because in order to prosecute somebody for voter fraud, you've got to actually prove who the person was that went into the polls and misrepresented hmm. who they were. Well, you don't get photographed when you go sign the book. There's no video camera uh, running at a polling place. So, you know, with all the people that come through to vote, it'd be virtually impossible for a poll worker to say, oh, I remember this person came in and signed in as Jane Doe. So it's virtually impossible to actually catch and prosecute somebody for misidentifying themselves at the polls uh, unless there's other evidence, uh, things like that. Now, whether or not there's uh, people who are going out and misidentifying themselves and voting, you know, multiple times, you've heard the old expression, vote early and vote often, mm -hmm. whether or not that's going on is really the bigger question. And so how do you know that that's going on? Well, other than going back and looking at voter rolls uh, and comparing them to the voting books after an election and doing things like looking for people who were deceased, who hadn't been purged from the rolls, how many dead people voted. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really also very difficult to determine whether someone misidentified themselves. Because, again, all you have to do is walk in and say, I'm Jane Doe, sign the book and go vote. And there's no, like I said, video or photography there in the polling place to uh, explain or to show who it was that actually voted in someone's name. So it's very difficult to quantify uh, how or whether this occurs. And so some people would say, well, then there's no evidence that it's going on. And that's a valid point. Um, and so without uh, real empirical data uh, or proof of that, uh, th that's, that's a pretty strong argument in that regard. Now, like I said, the proponents of voter ID say, look, what's the harm? You know, we've, we've set it up in, 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 in Mississippi, the, the position of, of the state is they've set up a system that uh, allows anybody that can get to a circuit clerk's office to get a free ID and uh, presumably, if you could get to the circuit clerk's office uh, or if you can go to the polls to vote, you can get to the circuit clerk's office, too. And so that's sort of the, the rationale uh, on that side of the argument. OK, uh, David is in, in uh, Louisville or Louisville. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, David. Maybe you can help me. <laughs> well, Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm David Chandler. As I told the uh, person who took my call, I'm actually driving, but... Uh, my wife and I live in Louisville. I'm also a retired uh, Supreme Court justice, and uh, two of my former law clerks asked me a question yesterday that, uh, that frankly, I could not answer, and, and, and I'm a little embarrassed that I could not. Here's what they asked. Whether those candidates who are seeking re-election to the uh, Supreme Court and Court of Appeals this fall whether they will have an eye following their name to indicate they're the incumbent. And uh, I just, I did not know the answer to that. Hmm. Okay. Uh, looks like Scott is looking it up. So uh, we'll, we'll figure it out in just a second, David. Okay. So just, just keep listening. All right. Can I hang up? Thanks now? for listening. Yeah, you, you can so, hang up. Go ahead, Professor Gershon. 
I just want to say thank uh, Justice Chandler for listening. He was a, a great longtime uh, Supreme Court justice, and we appreciate his service on that court. All right, uh, 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 Judge, thank you so much for, for that call, and we'll give Scott uh, a little chance to figure that out. Um, so, Professor Gershon, do you have any uh, thoughts? Oh, the, 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 the previous caller had asked about uh, were there any, was there a process in place uh, to get high school students registered to vote, uh, those, those seniors. Um, I think that's a really good idea. Professor Gershon, do you have any thoughts on that? I do, and in fact, you know, we're talking about uh, people voting uh, more than once is a potential problem, but I think it's even more of a problem that not enough people actually get out and vote. And, uh, you know, we really have a representative government, but when only about a third of the people are voting, that's really not a representative government. And uh, to to get young people involved early and and why it's important to vote uh, is a great idea to register high school students. Um, We make them all take the the ACT, and uh, that's a great idea, but, you know, why not register them to vote at the same time and make it easy for them? Uh, and the other question I have maybe for Scott is, at what point are we going to go to online voting? You know, I, I do my banking online. I do everything online. I can even check my Social Security account online. All that stuff is, uh, we hope, secure, but at least, you know, uh, seems to be. Why haven't we moved to more of an online voting system that would seem to make uh, democratize the process, make it easier for everybody? That makes me nervous, actually, Professor Gershon. Um, I don't know. Something about voting on the Internet, and I feel like fraud would be a thing. You have hackers. I don't know. That that makes me nervous. Is that is that process something you, you think you could really trust? Yeah, I mean, you know, like we, we have to trust it with, as I said, banking, you know, my bank. Well, that's is on, true. Yeah, there are that's hackers and, and, you know, things that we do every day. Uh, you know, our, I know at the university we do pretty much everything online at this point. And a lot of that is secure information, uh, you know, student information that is secure, social security numbers, things like that. So, And I um, guess it would be kind of challenging for the elderly, too. Um, you know, uh, they, I think they would need some extra assistance uh, when it when it came to online voting. But you're you're saying that just as an option, in addition to physically going to the polls and voting. Exactly, because mm-hmm. there are people people who uh, work full time. Uh, you know, sometimes have a hard time taking time during the day to make it to the polls. Uh, yeah. You know, if, uh, I know that if the weather's bad, people will think twice about it. We want we want to make this a, a process that everybody participates in, you know, who's eligible to vote. And uh, I don't know why, you know, we're in 2016 that we haven't moved more towards in that direction. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Um, we have a, a call to get to. Um, we're going to take a break. Uh, Scott's still looking up some information, trying to get that answer from a couple calls back. So we're going to take a break. Larry and Hazelhurst, if you could hold, we'll get to you in just a moment. He has a question about secret ballots. And Brent, if you could hold on, we'll get to you very briefly as well. We still have some time if you want to join the conversation and talk with us about voting. 877-MPB-RING is the number. If you have any questions or comments about absentee voting, your experiences at the voting booth, your right to vote, vote voter ID laws. We've been talking about all those things this morning. The number is 877-672-7464 or send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be back in just a moment.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to Illegal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sharita Brent in studio with Scott Gilbert, attorney at law for Watkins and Eager Law Firm in Jackson. And Professor Richard Gershon is on the line of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Um, earlier, not too long ago, we had a caller, an honorable judge, to ask us a question. And uh, Scott, maybe you can give us a, a general idea um, in response to his question that he had about how a name would show up on the ballot as regards in regard to um, an incumbent. All right. So what I uh, what I did to find the answer was I went to the Secretary of State's website and look and I'm looking at a sample ballot from the general election for 2015. And just Justice Chandler's question was, is the incumbent judge identified with an I? Many people, uh, if you think back to your voting experiences, will uh, remember that when you go to vote, a lot of times you'll see the incumbent, the current office holder, identified with a little lowercase I in parentheses. Uh, and it looks like I'm looking at the sample ballot here and looking at judicial elections uh, from 2015, and there is no indication uh, that the uh, incumbent is identified with the uh, lowercase i or, or actually in any form or format uh, at all in the judicial elections. Judicial elections uh, are nonpartisan, and so there's no Republican or Democrat uh, notation on judges in judicial elections in Mississippi, and so that's that's I think why that question is really sort of unique uh, to okay. judge to judicial races as opposed to uh, other office holders. All right, lots of calls to get to. We're going to go to Larry in Hazelhurst who has a question. Good morning, Larry. What do you have for us? Yes, I want to know is um, when you go in to vote, can the other voters or the poll watchers tell whether you're registered as a Republican or a Democrat? Okay. Uh, I. You know, I'm, I don't think so in Mississippi. Mississippi has what were called open primaries, and so you can go in and vote. Now, they have lists uh, at the Republican table and at the Democrat table, and I think everybody is on both lists. And so you have to sign in to vote. Now, this came up in a in a uh, an election challenge that, that you know some people may be familiar with from a few years ago in a uh, a U.S. Senate race here in Mississippi. Uh, about whether or not uh, you could vote in a Republican primary and then vote in or vote in a Democratic primary and then vote in the runoff for that primary on the Republican ballot, whether you could cross over, in other words. And so I think everybody's name is listed in the ballot books, uh, and uh, there's no designation for Republican or Democrat, as far as I know. Okay. Uh, All right, Larry, thank you for that call. We're going next to Brent and Natchez, who has a question. Good morning. Brent, what do you have for us? Uh, thanks. It's actually about polling, and I wanted the gentleman's opinion. Uh, a poll of, of the country going in the wrong direction is used all the time, and it seems to me they don't ask you whether it's going in the direction of too liberal or too conservative, and they lump it all in one and then show there's like 75% of the people in the country think we're going in the wrong direction, which seems to me to show a lot of maybe discontent that doesn't exist, and I just would, didn't know if they had an opinion on that. Okay, Brent. Thanks for that question. Well, you know, polls I think are 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 good for what you know are, are good for what they're uh, put together for. In other words, uh, you know, you can phrase questions uh, certain ways to try and uh, elicit certain information, uh, not necessarily certain answers, but certain information from people. And so you have to sort of keep in mind um, 
what the actual questions are. And, you know, polls are a dime a dozen. I mean, they're, they're everywhere, and they come from all different sources. And uh, not surprisingly enough, uh, different entities can ask for the same information in slightly different ways and claim to have, you know, starkly different results yeah. uh, than others. So, I, I you know, I, I, I see polls, and, and, you know, I guess I put whatever stock in them uh, I think they ought to have based on the integrity of the organization that, mm-hmm. that does them. But, um uh, you know, polls are, are are things that people can that you can phrase your question however you want to, and and uh, you know it's it's uh, it really has a lot to do with how they ask the question. And they typically use those polls to kind of support their own argument or whatever it is they're trying to prove. Uh, a, a lot of polls are paid for by candidates or people supporting particular issues. Not surprising. Uh, we're going next to Kate and Clinton with a comment. Good morning. What do you have for us? Yes. Good morning. Um. You were talking about voter registration, and it it is possible um, to go online to get the form. And I'm really pleased that you're bringing this fact up, that um, people need to get registered. Voter registration deadline is always 30 days prior to the election. So it needs to be done either in person or send this form in. Um, An individual would go onto the Mississippi Secretary of State's website, just look for the voter registration form, download it, fill it out, and send it in prior to the date or deliver it. And then, um, if they send it in the mail, the first time they vote, they will have to show the ID, Okay. their ID for registration. All right. Good information, Kate. Thank you so much for calling. We appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, Mary is in Oxford. Last call of the day. Good morning, Mary. What do you have for us? Good morning. Hey. I have a question about a person who has been convicted of a crime, has been incarcerated, and uh, has been found innocent after some time. Uh, can that person vote uh, easily, or do, are there hoops to, to go through in order to be reenfranchised? Uh, so I think I understand your question to be someone who's been convicted and who was later exonerated and had their conviction overturned. Is that right? That's true. Uh, once that conviction is overturned, they're no longer a convicted felon, assuming that that was all of their convictions. You know, someone was convicted of multiple felonies and only had only had one or, or you know fewer overturned, uh, then they wouldn't be. But if someone's had their felony conviction overturned, then they are not a convicted felon and they are they are free to vote again. Um, if he. This person is applying for a job. Does that person say that he has been uh, convicted of a felony, or does he just leave that or say no? Well, then that's a good question. So, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? So an employer is going to look at that how they want to look at it. Uh, and, and so you sort of run a risk by not being completely candid. Uh, if you've had a conviction but it's been overturned, then you have not you are not a convicted felon. But in a literal sense, if somebody were to ask you, have you been convicted of a felony offense, the, the actual answer is yes, but my conviction was reversed, and I'm mm-hmm. not a convicted felon. So you sort of have to be careful how you answer questions uh, like that. You can, you can kind of get yourself into, a, you know, into a, a bad spot with a potential employer. All right, Mary, thank you for that call. Um, and, Scott, we have time to, to answer one more question. We only have about a, a minute and a half here. What is the process of writing in candidates on a ballot? All right, so everybody's been to the poll, and you've seen that blank, and uh, lots of folks have 
probably at certain times looked at your choice of candidates and decided that um, you wanted a third option, and so you just wrote in your own name or the name of a friend and then sat by the TV hoping to see your name of your friend uh, up there on the election returns. Well, in Mississippi, write-in votes generally don't count. You can write whatever you want to in that blank, and it is meaningless and it has no legal effect. The write-in process in Mississippi only applies when one of the candidates on a ballot, uh, somebody who has qualified to be on the ballot, has died or withdrawn from the race for some other reason, and another candidate has been certified to replace them, but they didn't have time to put that person's name on the ballot. Mm. Now, that happened a few years ago in Simpson County, I think, in a judicial race. Uh, The incumbent judge qualified uh, and passed away after the ballots were printed but before the election. And so uh, the other candidates that qualified... Uh, they had a write-in election, and so that's literally how the election went. It was a right, strictly write-in. But just writing somebody's name in won't do any good. Uh, they don't get counted, and it's it's not a valid vote. The only reason the write-in works is if uh, a, a qualified candidate is no longer running uh, and someone else has been qualified to take their place, you can write their name in, and that would be an effective vote. Wow, okay. Um, and uh, your suggestion for a website for people who um, have questions about uh, voting and things like that? So the Secretary of State in Mississippi has uh, a fairly comprehensive election material, but there is a a document that they have on their website called the Mississippi Election Code Handbook. Uh, It was printed in, I think, 2005 or 2006, uh, and uh, a lot of that information is still current. It lists every state statute uh, that deals with election law, and it covers the gamut from uh, registration to what the form of the ballots have to be to how you uh, how you vote where you vote uh, including the absentee questions and just uh, as an aside uh, the answer to uh, the previous caller's question about how to get your disabled relative registered uh, according to the statute in Mississippi you just have to get a signed declaration from a physician and take that to the circuit clerk and you can get that entitles them by law to receive an absentee ballot every year for the rest of their life. Okay. Scott, thank you so, so much for being here with us this morning. It was a great show. We appreciate you coming in. Professor Gershon, thank you for being on as well. And if you didn't get to give us a call, you could send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. And also don't forget that you can uh, download the In Legal Terms podcast if you have missed some episodes. Jonas Adams was our board operator. Kevin Farrell was our... Who? Jay Jay White was our call screener. Thank you, Jay. Uh, Stay tuned. Southern Remedy is up next right here on MPB Think Radio.